with mobility, connectivity, and autonomy driving so much of today's auto industry. New products and producers are at an all-time high. But with so many new players, who's protecting them? Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week. You know, so much new technology is coming out of the automotive industry right now, especially with mobility, autonomous cars, and the like. But how do automakers and their suppliers protect themselves when they develop this intellectual property. That's what we're going to be talking about today because joining us is an expert in this field. Dr. Crystal Shepard is the director of the Midwest Regional Office for the United States Patent and Trade Office and uh, Patent and Trademark Office. Office. Thank you for that. <laughs> also joining us today are Jennifer Dukarski. She's an attorney with the company Butzel Long. And Pete Bigelow is the Technology and Mobility Editor for Car and Driver Magazine. Great to have all of you here today. Thank you for Thank having me. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Shepard, i got to ask you, there's just more new technology coming out of the auto industry now than I think there ever has been. That's my perception. Whether you're talking about reducing CO2 emissions, making cars more fuel efficient, making them safer and lighter, and now especially with mobility and ultimately autonomous cars. Do, do, do you see it that same way? Are you getting all kinds of patents on this technology? Oh, absolutely, because cars aren't, we have to remember, cars aren't the same thing we thought about 30, 40 years ago where there was an actual physical core connecting the, 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 the gas to the throttle. Now it's digital. And all those things require patents or they require innovations. And all these innovations, a lot of people are trying to protect them with patents or trademarks or copyrights or trade secrets. But with so many companies just, they, they must be flooding your office then with these patents. How do you keep up with it all? We have a hard time keeping up. So it's a lot of times when I go out and doing outreach, people think, oh, well, she's going to push patents. Oh, no, no, no. I want you to make an intelligent decision on what type of intellectual property you're going to use. Uh, we have a backlog, which we're working on very, very diligently. We get over 300,000 patent applications a year. Um, and we have examiners. We have about 10,000 people, about 8,000, 9,000 other examiners. Some of them are located right here in Michigan who examine them, and we have a lot of work. 10,000 evaluating 300,000, that's what, 30,000 a piece, or, or 3,000 a piece, right? It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Pete, you were going to answer? I was saying, speaking of your office, uh, the USPTO has a new, relatively new office in Detroit that is uh, separate from, from the D.C. area office. Uh, how long has the Detroit office been open, and, and how is that going so far? We've been open, uh, open almost, four, for, uh, almost four exact years. And the thing is, for 222 years, because our office has been open in Alexandria for 226 years. So the United States Patent and Trademark Office is in, is, uh, started with three people. It was the, the three commissioners were uh, the Secretary of War, Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury. That's how important it was to our country uh, 226 years ago. And all during that time, it was always in the nation's capital or with an eyesight of the nation's capital. Now we have one in Detroit. Why? So that we can have people like people of, of my level and examiners here so that we can reach people who normally wouldn't be reached by Alexandria. So I'm going to um, Bowling Green, uh, Kentucky uh, later today, tomorrow, and I'm able to get to places and people who people from, from Alexandria may not be able to get to. And they have access, access to me, and I'm able to push out information to them. So Jennifer, uh, you know, Crystal mentioned that there's, there's not only the patent, there's copyright, there's trademark, there's trade secrets. How do you see automakers uh, using those, those tools or 
uh, a variety of them to protect their intellectual property. Well, it puts automakers and their suppliers in an interesting position. Um, they have so many different tools to choose from, and some of them are, are the right tools or the wrong tools, depending on what they're doing. I think with the um, advent of new software technologies, a lot of companies are starting to, to question, is patent the right route? Uh, is it better to just keep what we have inside and keep our technology to ourselves and relying on trade secrets and all the protections that entails, or actually filing a copyright? And I find these days I'm doing more on that avenue than referring my client base uh, to, to do patents. Um, and again, it really is their decision, but they're looking at different avenues. So patents are still an excellent tool, uh, but in the light of, of software, a lot of people are looking for novel approaches to try to protect their technology. Can I add just one thing there? Sorry. There actually are two different types of patents, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. There are utility patents, which you think of the type of patents people normally think of when they think of patents, things that are functional, things that are functional, but there's also design patents. And automobiles have a lot of design patents, and those are the ornamentation. So these days, people who are buying cars are not buying them. Well, some people, most people aren't buying cars because they will get you from point A to point B any differently than another car. It's how you look when you get out of the car at point B, and that's all design. And those are protected by design patents, as opposed to utility patents, which protect the function. What's the difference between patents and trade secrets then? And, and Jennifer, how do you protect yourself by, you don't file for a trade secret, do you, or do no, you? No, you don't file for a trade secret. It's kind of the exact opposite mm -hmm. of a patent. When you're patenting technology, you're disclosing that technology. Um, and it's a great tool that protects things for a certain limited period of time once the patent issues. A trade secret is entirely different. It's, it's kind of the, the secret sauce. It's uh, the, the recipe and formula for Coca-Cola, for example. It's something that you can protect as long as you can keep it secret as long as you implement measures to kind of keep that quiet and within your technology base within your own company. But what if some company just stumbles on the same thing that you had then? Is, does that ever happen? And it, it what happens, happens then? Uh, usually it depends. You'll either have litigation. I mean, everybody <laughs> always wants to head into litigation. Uh, but with a trade secret, if somebody can either reverse engineer it or develop it on their own, then you're kind of at loss for that technology. You're really not able to protect it in that manner. Um, so when you're thinking about trade secrets, these automotive companies are really kind of weighing what technologies they have, and that's why patents are often a very valuable tool, um, but sometimes it's just not the tool that they choose. For trade secrets, you're absolutely right. If you can reverse engineer it, if you can develop the formula for Coke yourself and go sell it, I mean, they can't stop you. It's a trade secret, mm -hmm. as long as you didn't steal it. Mm -hmm. um, but if uh, for, for patents, if you had a patent for something, even if someone, everyone after you comes and invents it over and over again, they can't make it unless they pay you. Unless they get your permission. Well, and that's one of the interesting things we're seeing right now with yeah. all of the mobility of not just cars, but actually people in between companies and, and engineers are definitely moving from company to company, taking that technology. If you have something that is patent protected, you're definitely in a different position than having to fight the trade secret litigation if an employee steals your technology and goes to a competitor and uses something that they may have put on a Western digital hard drive as they were walking out the door. That's got to be a, a sticky wicket, legal. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody walks out of a company because they got a better job someplace, they didn't take anything except knowledge in their head. And even though they're probably trying to be careful about not trying to step on any patents or anything like mm -hmm. that, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, that's actually just become a, a very big thing with the new Defend Trade Secrets Act. Um, that legislation really changes things uh, in the sense that we used to be uh, limited to just states. 
Uh, and there was a Uniform Trade Secrets Act that uh, most states adopted, but states like New York uh, and Massachusetts, their, their law is entirely different. Now you have a foundation law that everyone can apply and get into federal court. So the protections are, are more along the lines of patent protection in the sense that you have access to the exact same court that would deal with patent disputes. But you're absolutely right. It's a sticky wicket because people, you cannot say that they have no livelihood. They, can't, they have to stay with you forever <laughs> because of what they have in their head. They have to be able to go to different companies. And we see that in Silicon Valley all the time. And some people will say that the cross-pollination is a good thing. But other people will say the cross-pollination is a bad thing if you take my information with you. Um, the bigger problems are when you take the hard drives with you or take mm -hmm. a, a thumb drive with you. Uh, but... Those are for trade secrets. Mm -hmm. Patents, you, it, it, you're much more protected. When they leave, if they leave, leave and they start uh, utilizing your patents, you, you have no problem stopping them. Jennifer, are you seeing more of those cases uh, related to the things in your, in your mind, especially now that we have, we have Google, we have Faraday Future, we, mm -hmm. we probably have Apple hiring all these engineers in the automotive realm to, to uh, work on autonomous technology? We're definitely seeing that. And, and there's, there's really a distinction between what's in your mind and what you steal with a jump drive. Um, if it's in your mind and you have these ideas from a trade secret standpoint, um, there's a lot of law that says you can't shut the door on what you know. And this new federal law also suggests you can't shut the door on what you know. It's, it's in your head, it's there. But if you do plug in that jump drive before you leave and download a couple hundred thousand files, that's an entirely different position. And I'm seeing a lot of litigation where that's more the norm these days and, and much less uncommon. Dr. Shepard, too, we've seen, especially in, in the tech industry, th this whole problem with what they call patent trolls. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess there's a, a term that I've, <laughs> non-practicing entities. Non-practicing entities. And yes. is this a problem in the automotive industry as well with all this new technology? And, and how do you deal with them, or is that not your job to deal with it at all? Well, I, I'm going to say three things really quickly. One is, we've seen this before, and with between Ford um, and the Sheldon patents. And that was if- And if that we, goes back 100 years 100 ago, years plus. Ago. Plus, and there's been lots of these sort of kind of conversations throughout different industries, and people would have called Sheldon a non-practicing entity, a patent troll. For the PTO, for our, for our office, we do not categorize people as good or bad based on their business practice. We will say there are some abusive litigation techniques that we abhor, and like other people abhor them also. Um, Sheldon, the his patent went away or got very narrow, as it should have. And, we and I just have to add this for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The reason the patent went away is his patent didn't work. Henry <laughs> Ford proved it didn't work. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, no, but it's a great little aside. No, it's fantastic that you, know, that, that you know of these things. And it's funny, I always say, if you know enough about, um, anyone who makes patents boring, is, doesn't really understand how fun it could be. And even you, you knew about that little tidbit about how the, fo the machine actually didn't work, even though he had the patent. So um, in, any, in any event, yes, we are seeing some activity. There are multiple different things that people are doing, but the Patent and Trademark Office has a court. It's an administrative court where people can come and say that person should never have gotten that patent. And that's what Ford would have probably done against the Sheldon patent, would have come to our office in Detroit and, uh, and um, put through forth a, an administrative proceeding saying, Sheldon should never have gotten that patent. He would not have gone have to go to court for that. 
Okay, I want to hear what the attorney has to say now. Do you, do you get a lot of activity in this uh, with these non-practicing entities? You know, we, we, we do from a standpoint of a lot of my colleagues are, are really kind of the specialists in that area, but we do see those sort of activities. I was involved very early on uh, assisting one of my colleagues in one that was just a drop-down menu challenge. <laughs> um, we were representing a retailer, and just their ability to have a drop-down menu that would let them choose what to buy was being attacked. <laughs> You know, we, we see it in copyrights, too, as people are starting to move towards copyright to protect their uh, intellectual property in the car. That's an issue, too, if you think about the people who are accused of downloading movies. You know, there are a lot of non-practicing entities or just people who are owning those kind of copyrights who are filing suit uh, just all over the place. And, so. and yet, I've got to believe that one person's troll is another person's visionary. Because there's Absolutely. a great example right now of a company called Pace that mm -hmm. has uh, locked up all the basic patents on hybrids. Mm -hmm. And they've gone after each and every one of the car companies. And they've made millions off this thing. So here's this guy, a Russian inventor, who back in the 70s figured this mm -hmm. out. And I'm sure he's, he thinks he's right in collecting. But I can tell you for a fact, the OEMs do not like paying these guys royalties mm -hmm. at all. Well, that's a system. I mean, if people innovate and they get the patent, that is, that's the whole point. We're, we're trying to encourage innovation by allowing people to get a reward. And one person's innovator is somebody else's troll. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, non-practicing entities, universities are non-practicing entities. And they do all kinds of research. You would not say that a university is just out there to take people's money. Mm -hmm. So I have a problem when people use a business strategy as, and vilify that. Yeah, it's not black and white. Yeah. Jennifer, I wanted to bounce back to something you just said, that automakers are increasingly looking at copyright as a means mm -hmm. to protect their intellectual property. It, that's fascinating because wasn't it just last year that there was a dispute involving uh, the U.S. Copyright Office uh, that the mm -hmm. automakers essentially lost, where uh, you know the ultimate ruling was that they could not protect their software, um, or they could not restrict access to their software and mm -hmm. code for for inventors and tinkerers. And so, in light of that ruling, uh, why are they nonetheless moving toward toward copyright? Well, the, the kind of a, you don't want to call it that, but the Jay Leno rule, the, the folks who want to actually be able to tinker with their cars. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are in the eco-modder space where they want to make improvements to their own vehicle. That's, I think, what the, the crux of that issue centered on. Can I, as a car owner, actually tweak my vehicle and tweak what I own? Now, I think they're still going after, even though they lost that, I think they're going after the protection to block out other competitors from using the same type of code. At this point, if you're a supplier and you've created a base code that runs your component, whether it's something in the infotainment system, whether it's a telematics component, if you lock down some software and algorithms that are going to set everything, you know, your system, you want to protect that and lock it down. So maybe they're not protecting it against the eco-modders, but they sure don't want the competitor to have it. I, I wasn't all the way up on, uh, on the details of that. So essentially what the auto companies were told is people can hack in and play around with the code in there? Well, the, the car companies really wanted to, to zealously protect their code, and anyone who either plugs in an aftermarket device, um, anyone who is a, a car shop of their own who wants to plug in to try to get the diagnostic codes um, or modify any of the codes is somebody who wanted to, to boost up their performance, um, really couldn't under copyright because they were actually modifying the copyright, creating what in terms they call a derivative. Um, so once they create that derivative, that's infringement. And if they were found to do so willfully, that's $150,000 potentially um, of a fine. When you think of the, the soccer mom who downloaded 10 songs from Napster and had that $1.5 million judgment against her, you can understand where, 
where that's a, a big thing for, for you and me if we wanted to tune our cars. So that challenge came up, and, and the automakers were trying to zealously protect what they had from everyone. Uh, and in this instance, consumers kind of won out, I think, in, in the dispute with a little more ability to tune and eco-mod their own systems. Mm -hmm. With a caveat that that ruling has to be renewed every, every two or three years. years. Yes. Exactly. It's funny because we see the same problem in copyright with music, and it's a, mm -hmm. a, good, a good analogy is remixes. I always have this conversation with mm -hmm. my students with remixes. People think, oh, I can mix two songs together, make a new song, and it's okay. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of what the modifiers are doing. And in this particular instance, the court went a specific way mm -hmm. that um, was, was perhaps different than they would have decided in music. Hey, yeah. it, uh, uh, at the USPTO, mm -hmm. You guys have got, I guess it's in the lobby, you took an original 1964 Mustang and a present day 2016 Mustang and you, you slid it lengthwise down the middle and slammed the two together. Are you trying to create a new car or what, uh, what's well, the purpose in that? I will say that, that, that uh, Ford did that for us. <laughs> because it, it's a, you bring up an interesting question. Um, modifying, that might have been a problem if we'd done it ourselves. So Ford <laughs> did it for us and brought us down there. It is in our, in our lobby. We have a museum which highlights the, the uh, inventors and some of the inventors being Ford and, and, and uh, Goodyear and others. So you can get down there and get behind the wheel and really see the difference uh, physically between the two cars. I did not know the USPTO has its own museum. Yes, this is do. open to the public. Open to the public. In, in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. in the lobby. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I'm learning a lot on this show. <laughs> Here, here's another question for you, Dr. Shepard. How do you protect yourself on a global basis? Mm. You know, and especially now in automotive, we're seeing Chinese companies, not the big ones, mm -hmm. the smaller ones doing the copy and paste approach right. to designing vehicles. They'll take something, they'll tear it down, they'll, in, instead of the grill going like a, in a frown, they'll make the grill like a <laughs> smile and they say, see, we didn't copy it. Right. How do you protect yourself? Or, does the USPTO offer any protection in something like that? Well, there's two answers to your question. The first is, we often have people say, you know, someone's doing this in China and they're selling it to like Indonesia or somewhere, but pick your own two countries. And um, uh, can I, how do I stop them? And the first thing I say to them is, uh, did you patent it in China or Indonesia? The rights are territorial. You really, ha you have to understand where your markets are, where you care, where you're actually gonna litigate. Because just because you have a patent in the United States, it does not translate to other countries. So that's the first thing. The second is we have lots of different mechanisms to help you. We have something called the, um, the IP attaches, intellectual property attaches, who are in country, in different countries. And Ford or others in smaller companies can go to them and say, well, these are things are happening. And they will, will, will help negotiate on some of these. They're not, they're not lawyers. You have your, your uh, counsel there, but they can help. Well, let's go a little bit outside the box to answer the question that comes before that question. How do you keep it out of the hands of, mm -hmm. of some of these other companies? And, and I hate to say it, but that's where cybersecurity is absolutely instrumental and ties directly to intellectual property. You know, if you have people traveling to China or other countries, making sure that their computer is locked down appropriately, making sure you have safeguards on your system and you're encrypted, actually is a great way of protecting your intellectual property and making sure your law firm does the same. Well, I, I think we're seeing different results from different companies because if, just a few years ago, there was a Chinese company that had ripped off the Ford F-150. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not going to say it was direct, but anybody who would look at it goes, that's a Ford. Mm -hmm. Ford was successful in preventing that company from mm -hmm. taking it to market. Meanwhile, Land Rover is facing another, Chi in fact, it might be the same Chinese company <laughs> that ripped off one of its designs for the Land Rover Evoque. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. And, you know, they've just now uh, filed the lawsuit in China, mm -hmm. but this is more than a year after the vehicle first appeared. And my first reaction was, why didn't the Land Rover lawyers contact the Ford lawyers and figure <laughs> out how they stopped it from happening? 
Well, these are design patents. Again, it's not about the way it functions, it's the way, about the way it looks. And design patents are very, they're, they're going up like this. The amount mm -hmm. of people who are going after those. Because again, it's not about how the car functions, it's about how it looks. And companies have to protect it. Just getting that piece of paper is not enough. You, you're going to have to go over there because someone is going to copy it. Mm -hmm. Speaking of design patents or patents overall, I'm just curious, my perception being here in the Detroit area is that the automotive industry is going like gangbusters uh, with patents. And I'm curious how that compares to other industries that maybe I just don't see on an everyday basis. Is, is automotive truly uh, you know, patenting things at a faster clip than, than other industries? Well, absolutely. And the, here's the thing is, everyone thinks, you know, we're in Detroit, it's all, it's all mechanical engineering. No, not even close. Because if you look at your car, your car has over 100,000 lines of code. Mm -hmm. There's more code in your, in your car than an, than an F-15 fighter. 100 more, million 100 lines. 100 million lines of code. Mm -hmm. And more than took, you know, took um, the astronauts to the moon. Mm -hmm. So this is a little Silicon Valley. So a lot of the patents are not automotive. They're in the GUI, in the graphical mm -hmm. user interfaces. They're in design. They're in everything you can imagine. So we've, we've, the automotive companies have just orders of magnitude made it more complex and therefore more places where they have to protect. But following up on Pete's question, how does the automotive industry stack up against, say, like the tech industries yeah. or others? So, uh, so we've seen we see a, a massive um, uptick, and I'm not going to get the, name, the number exactly right, but they're in the top 20 of patentees right now. So, and the number's going up. And a lot of that is being driven by the number of design patents. And it's funny, John, you said, how does it compare to the tech companies? It, it, you know, we're almost at a point where it's I think thing. auto is tech is, is one and the same. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, it's not just Google, it, it's Qualcomm and uh, mm -hmm. all sorts of different companies converging in, in this auto tech uh, sector. You mentioned a big increase in design patents. How about when it comes to all these algorithms that are needed for ride sharing and car sharing, and subsequent to that, too, for autonomous cars? Yeah, mobility is a, is, a, is a massive space, and we're going through a time of disruption, a massive disruption. And I look at cars, and, and I always say, say that, okay, cars really haven't changed that much in 150 years. You, there's gasoline, there's air, how much you fix, you know, ratio goes faster, right? Um, and now there's always other things kind of happening at the same time between the type of car, but also in mobility spaces. And I'm really proud of the, 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 three, the, um, the big three and the others around here, because unlike when the Japanese came and innovated, this time we're really innovating also to, because of the disruption. I can't answer the question of if it's fast enough or what they're, you know, exactly what they're doing that's in, uh, under wraps, but it is disruptive. You mentioned uh, before 300,000 patents getting filed every year. You have 10,000 people trying to, to keep pace with all this. Is technology helping the patent office? Or are there things in artificial intelligence and the like? I mean, can you ask IBM Watson to go and <laughs> go through some of these things and speed up the process? So we, we've done a lot of, we have what's called the Enhanced Patent Quality Initiative, where we're trying a lot of different things to see how we can help the process. Our backlog is going down. We, we, we're using technology to the best extent we possibly can. We've uh, engaged our stakeholders to see how we can do this better. We have great patent quality, but we were trying to enhance it. And some of that is to use uh, one of its using autonomous searches that's in a trial trial hmm. and Jennifer how about on your side are you seeing are you litigating more is your company litigating more than well, in the past we definitely are in, in multiple fronts I know that our patent team are always busy um, with a lot of different disputes whether it's it's current and you know modern technology or it's you know your old-fashioned um, you know pistons and and nuts and bolts um, we're definitely busier also on on the copyright and trade secrets fronts 
Um, everyone's trying to lock down their IP. They know how important it is today. Is there any trend that you see in, as you look at all the different kinds of cases that you're, you're handling and you go, oh, I see this is happening more than others? Honestly, I see a lot of trade secret issues. I, I see a lot more movement of employees. I see a lot of people looking to enforce contracts that they had entered into with employees uh, about protecting technology and keeping it secret. And I see employees breaching those contracts. So I see a lot more on the employment front trying to protect trade secrets and other intellectual property trying to restrain those employees from sharing it with their new hires. Are, are, is it just people switching jobs or does this involve industrial espionage as well? There's, there, there's a little bit of both. What I'm seeing is, is more employee-led, um, although there are some insidious things going on out there, I'm sure. Um, industrial espionage is huge. As I kind of mentioned before, the idea of cybersecurity and its importance, there are a lot of companies, and, and maybe not all of them are domestic, that are really trying to get in and, and figure out what's going on in different companies. So that type of technology, if anything, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot more attacks that are of a cyber nature and a lot more people plugging in those really, really large jump drives <laughs> and just downloading files. Yeah. This, this, I want to uh, follow up to that. You know, people have, a, have some opinions about Congress, and I, you know, I understand <laughs> the opinions about Congress, and I'll call them the do-nothing Congress. But something that got, got passed was the trade secret, uh, mm -hmm. this, this act, Defend Trade Secrets Act, because of that problem. Cybersecurity, all of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you know, in the patent area, intellectual property area, which is so important to our uh, country that it was literally, it's literally in the Constitution of the United States. Um, the Congress has gotten these things done. Mm -hmm. So, and this was done last year? That no, was done about a month ago. Oh, a month ago. Yeah. And was yeah. this bipartisan support? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, intellectual property, unlike other parts of, um, uh, of law, is really not, it may be political, but it's not partisan. Well, that's great to hear that uh, both parties came together to address something as serious as this and actually got it done. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's good. Look, with this, uh, we're, we're going to wrap it up. I, I, I learned a ton today. This is really good stuff. And I want to thank you all. Dr. Crystal Shepard, the director of the Midwest Regional Office for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Jennifer Dukarski, an attorney with Butzel Long. Pete Bigelow, the technology and mobility editor for Car and Driver Magazine. I want to thank all three of you for having been here today. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. And I hope all of you enjoyed this show as much as I did. And remember, you can tune in again next week for yet another edition of AutoLine This Week.